Hello. Actor Janet Bean and writer Damien Labar join me on today's show to talk about telling family stories in the context of our respective Irish, Gypsy and Chinese backgrounds. Along the way, we explore language, stereotyping and identity. Welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring creativity in all its diverse forms. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. So my guests today are writer Damien Labar and actor Janet Bean. Damien Labar is a writer of Gypsy and Irish descent. His book, The Stopping Places, is a personal journey exploring his heritage and the history of the Romani people. Janet Bean is an actor and playwright. Her father was Irish and her mother was from Yorkshire. Her latest play, Kathleen and Me, is the story of her Irish grandmother told in Kathleen Bean's own words. And for those of you who may not know me outside of this podcast, I'm of Chinese heritage, born in Malaysia. I wrote and performed a play, Bound Feet Blues, inspired by my great-grandmother who had bound feet. And there is also a family memoir in book form of the same name. Well, thank you so much, Damien Labar and Janet Bean, for coming on to the Creative Conversations podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Great. So, well, to give a bit of context as to the theme of this pod, this particular episode of the podcast, which is about telling family stories and why um, I was very excited uh, to invite you guys on. Um, my uh, play, Bound Feet Blues, and the related book memoir, um, tells the story of my great-grandmother who had bound feet. Um, and as a child, um, I was just um, horrified to learn about bound feet because actually it, you think bound feet is, oh, you just bind it with a, with a piece of cloth and that's it. But actually, um, they break the feet of the little girl um, so that it's completely shattered and then it's bound to make it look small and delicate and beautiful. And um, when I grew up uh, in, in my 20s, I uh, uh, just hated wearing high heel shoes. And it kept reminding me of bound feet. Um, and really thinking about it, um, bound feet was a way of keeping women beautiful um, and on a pedestal, as it were. Um, and they were literally kept in their place um, in that they could not leave the house and they could not walk unaided. And so with high heels, it was just torture for me. I don't know whether that affected you, Janet. Um, and perhaps that's a bit sexist of me because I'm assuming Damon didn't have to wear high heel shoes. I did not. <laughs> Um, and uh, so then um, it, the, the story interweaves the story of my great grandmother who had bound feet and my own coming out story and how as I um, kind of became um, more aware and empowered in myself and my sexuality, my shoes changed from high heels to, to hiking boots to biker boots um, and then to uh, flat shoes and where I can stride about in my life. Um, 
what kind of uh, the, the themes that, that came out for me um, as the, my personal journey as a writer, uh, uh, writing the book and the play, was thinking about how our family heritage and our culture and traditions actually form how we um, show up in the world and our sense of identity, where we belong or don't belong, um, and who we are in this world. So I'm really excited when I learnt your respective stories um, to kind of explore with you how your respective heritages and cultures uh, influence your worldview and how you show up in the world. Um, so thank you for coming on. So uh, to, to, to get things started, um, Damien Labar, um, could you tell us what, what is The Stopping Places, your, your book about? Stopping Places, A Journey Through Gypsy Britain is titled thus because it's about well there are several strands to the book really but but firstly it's about these places which have an historical attachment to gypsies and travelers uh, to the nomads of britain or people who were traditionally nomadic and the subtitle a journey through gypsy britain is really me sort of throwing down a challenge to the idea that that gypsies don't have a Britain of their own, or that, or that Britain isn't has, hasn't somehow been influenced by uh, their our presence over many centuries. Um, so really, it, it it started for me as a as a way of of exploring my family history, which was was very different to the way that I grew up. And in fact, that most gypsies and travellers live now. Um, my mother's family lived really for centuries in a way that didn't change very much, uh, working on farms in a very remote part of the country. And I felt that, that's, that there were aspects of that that were under-acknowledged. So they were true nomads in the sense that they, they never slept in buildings ever um, and, and lived in tents and wagons alongside horses. But but they travelled a, a very predictable circuit, which never really changed. It was a seasonal circuit around certain farms. It was very geographically restricted to within a, a hundred odd square miles, probably. So they, they were both, uh, in a way, you know, the image of, of the gypsy as portrayed in, in English painting and, and literature to an extent, but also the opposite of the image of the footloose gypsy who goes everywhere and does what they want and stuff and, and they were sort of personified for me by my great-grandmother who is still alive which feels miraculous to me I'm 36 and I go around there very often to eat and eat with her and speak to her and stuff so that's kind of what it's about family history gypsy history and a book of the road really and actually you um as part of that exploration in the book you set off i mean you you live in a house and you set off in a in a van to to follow those routes and to visit those stopping places well i was living in a trailer uh not a particularly nice one either a, a 1970s buccaneer which sounds romantic but, but lacked heating and had a problem with damp um so going away to to live in a transit van for a year and occasionally I'd return to the trailer to get supplies and you know my wife was living there in, in that most of the time. Uh, I sort of couldn't tell which was was worse really but they were both fairly awful places to live in the British winter. In the summer they suddenly become idyllic and, and desirable and 
symbolize a kind of bohemian free and footloose lifestyle but but it's a kind of you know summer and winter are two very different experiences for a nomad in northern europe well, we'll come back um, and explore um, that story in, in, in more detail. Uh, but I want to go over to Janet Bean. Um, can you tell us, Janet, about your play, Kathleen and Me? Um, well, it, at the moment, it's a film. We were going to make a play, but uh, the uh, second lockdown prevented us from doing that. So um, we were in, uh, well, my husband was locked down and he had, has just bought himself a lovely new camera. So he filmed the work that we've been doing thus far. Um, and uh, it's uh, we use the book that my father made of my grandmother's memories. He went and recorded her when she was in her 90s in the, the old people's home in Dublin. Um, he sat by the bed and just got her to, you know, say everything. And um, she also, in her 90s, I suppose people were sort of crowding around thinking she's not going to last much longer. But a man from Canada came and said, did she want to make an LP? And she made an LP because she'd sung all her life and been a great singer. You couldn't, you couldn't stop her from singing. Really. Um, and she made an LP called When All the World Was Young. So we used the songs from that and images from her life and her words from my dad's book. Or, well, it is my dad's book, but, you know, he, 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 it's her words. And... Um, um, just, just, to, um, uh, just to tell people the name of the book. Well, the book is called Mother of All the Beans because she was Brendan Behan's mother. And my father was doing the book. So I think he put the all in there in order to say, hey, there's others of us. It's not just Brendan. <laughs> she and, had and more for, children than just Brendan. And for those who may not know, who, who was Brendan Behan? Brendan Bean was a playwright, um, very, very famous at the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s. I mean, world famous. He wrote The Hostage and he wrote The Queer Fella and um, a book called Borstal Boy that when my son went to secondary school, Borstal Boy was on the reading list. I was very, very pleased to see. Um, he was, he died very young, age of 41 from alcohol. And he was an enormous figure and for many, many people in Ireland and the Irish diaspora, he is still a bit of a legend. So, and in terms of the book, it was redressing the balance, as you say, to, to tell the story of the wider family. And But you've distilled that into the play, Kathleen and Me. Um, could you just give us a sort of uh, a flavour of the, the kind of um, the arc of your, of your play? Well, it begins with her talking about her very, very early childhood, and it ends with her talking about so the very last bit in the book is about my dad going off to university and being pleased as punch, as she says. And in between then, you have the Easter Rising, you have the Civil War, you have tenement life, you have corporation housing, um, enormous, an enormous raft of fascinating social history and political history as well. They were a very political family. So the social and political history of Ireland told through the eyes of a, a, a woman who um, who lived through it all uh, into her 90s. Who lived through it all and participated in it all, may I say. She, she ran messages for Pierce and Connolly at the Easter Rising. Gosh, what what a character, what a, what a lady. Um, so what inspired 
what inspired you to tell your grandmother's story uh, in the form of a play? You, we already had the book. We've got the LP. Why a play now? And and why why you? And um, you know what you distilled from those resources into a, a new creative work. Well, my father offered me the rights to the book when I was about thirty-two, and said he thought it would help my career. And I rather snottily said, oh, "I'm far too young." I, there's nothing wrong with my career, thanks very much. Um, so anyway, uh, so it's always been in the back of my mind. I, I knew Kathleen. I, I, always, I always felt like I did a very good imitation of Kathleen, although when we came to rehearse it, I found that the imitation was not needed or wanted. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. Um, I'm an actress. I, I, I had a big chunk out of my acting career because I have a very severely disabled son and I was at home looking after him for many years. And when I was, I started to write. And I wrote a play about my uncle Brendan uh, that was very successful. And Adrian Dunbar played Brendan and everybody thought, you know, quite rightly that he was a wonder. And I used to sit in the bar afterwards and I used to think, he's getting all the attention. You know, nobody's coming up to me saying, what a marvellous play. They're all saying, you know, your, your Brendan was unspeakably wonderful. Um, so I just, after that experience, I thought, well, maybe I should just write something for me. And I did. I wrote a play called uh, Why Shouldn't I Go? And then I was looking for something new to write. And somebody wanted me to do something in the, our local literary festival. And I just thought, well, I could just do a bit of reading from Mother of All the Beans. And it kind of ballooned from there really so in a way what i'm hearing is that um why shouldn't uh, th th that you wanted to write from the woman's perspective um and that uh, the man was getting all the the attention um <laughs> and uh so why shouldn't i go is the story uh, of three fictitious women um uh, uh, and, and you portray each one and their monologues um from um that the range of I suppose, Irish women's stories, I guess. Mm. Um, and so now with Kathleen and me, it's it's the the, the mother um, and the matriarch, and it's her perspective, and that's the, the sort of more feminist, perhaps, role uh, and stories that you wanted to tell? Yes, very much so. I mean, of course, obviously, there's a lot in the book that isn't in the um, play. But I think that we wanted to tell the story of the woman, you know, leave leave out the famous Sanchez. So her brother also wrote the Irish National Anthem. So, you know, we leave him out. We leave the famous author out. You know, we focus in on that woman's life and what and her perspective and the, uh, and, and the things that happened to her and that she made happen. And so what was it like, uh, anyway, channeling your grandmother? You said, you know, you, 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 you ditched the imitation, but obviously for the play, the characterization as an actor, you have to be her um, for the duration. Um, I just, I mean, I, I, I angsted endlessly about whether I was actually like her and what, what would people say and all that. I was, of course, you know, all my cousins and uh, were going to see it. And... Um, in the end, I just, I suppose, I can't, it's very hard to describe really, isn't it? But I just thought, she's a woman in her 80s. We decided she'd be 80 in the play. Um, she's had that life. Those memories are no longer raw with her. But, you know, uh, maybe sometimes she's emotional about it, but not very. And just, just gradually sort of 
sank into somebody that I felt I could say was Kathleen B. And, you know, obviously it's not the same person. But then people saw it and the family have all said, oh, yeah, God, you're just like her. And I suppose when you think about it, of course I'm just like her because I, I have an enormous amount of her DNA, don't I? So, yeah, and do you feel that by embodying her, you kind of understood her as a woman better or not? Yes, I do. I think as a child, I was very unfair to her because she was quite imperious and bossy. And uh, she wasn't, she, there was nothing of the little old lady about Kathleen at all. She wasn't sort of going to gush over her grandchildren. You know, she just wanted us to basically wait on her hand and foot, bring in her cups of tea and half slices of bread and oh, take that away. That's too much. Oh, bring them, bring another cup. That cup's cold. All of that kind of thing. And um, I, I saw her. I think the last time I saw her, I think she, she must have been, it must have been a year before she died, maybe. And I just thought, what a wonderful, wonderful example of a human being. Her intellect was still as sharp as a knife. She was, there was nothing, as I was saying, there was really nothing of the old lady about her. And she was making the album, she was recording the book, she was looking forward, you know, life still had stuff to offer. And um, my mother's mother, on the other hand, was a very depressed old lady who succumbed to Alzheimer's. So, you know, which, which would you rather take forward in life? You know, the image of this kind of very, very unhappy woman who'd also had a very hard life, but had, it had left her unhappy or a woman who had had a terribly hard life and it had left her invigorated. That's very, very inspiring. Um, it kind of resonates with me because uh, I'm thinking of my um, play, um, Bound Feet Blues, where I embody on stage a woman uh, from uh, China's history, maybe 100 or 200 years ago, who had bound feet. Um, and I have no ex personal experience, thank goodness, of bound feet um, or that era. But um, by kind of embodying with the work of our, our uh, mutual director, Jessica Higgs, um, uh, we explored what it was like and, and I kind of um, stood very, very still on stage, very, very rigid as if I couldn't move, um, which I wouldn't have been able to with, with bound feet um, and embodied her. And it was really interesting, the mindset of that, that I, I sort of suddenly emerged uh, within my body and that actually I was very proud as this bound foot woman. I was proud of my bound feet. Don't feel sorry for me. Um, I... I was the epitome of Chinese beauty at that time. Um, and in the play, I talk about and compare having bound feet to a West, the modern Western um, uh, 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 for, for women who, who want to look more beautiful, you know, having um, face surgery, cosmetic surgery, breast enhancement and so on. I said, well, you know, what's wrong with that? Why are you criticizing me? I'm really proud of being, you know, beautiful. Um, and, and that explained... Um, how that practice um, uh, continued for a thousand years, which was 40 generations of women passing it on to their children. Um, it was really very interesting, strangely empowering, and also quite scary. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I want to uh, move over to you now, Damien Labar, um, because uh, I, I just want to pick up that thread um, around, you know, your... Um, 
traveling to the stopping places, you know, physically being in the places that your ancestors were. Um, I'd love to hear uh, your experience of, of that. Um, and also more generally, why you felt impelled to write about your gypsy heritage. I'd always felt a powerful lack of a certain kind of experience, particularly when I was younger, listening to members of my family who'd lived on the road describe that time um, as, as hard as they made it sound. And it was obviously a very hard life doing, you know, literally back-breaking physical work, often like potato picking up and stoning fields and ditch clearing and hedge laying and, you know, whatever work you could get on, on remote farms in all seasons. There was still obviously a romance to it and lots that they missed about it, the togetherness, um, the, the music, uh, the singing, the step dancing, uh, the use of the Romany language, uh, be, being with other traveling people a lot. There's this sense of isolation often in, in nomads who, who move into settled housing. And, and they, they sort of warned you off of it whilst also not being able to help making it sound like a golden age at the same time. And, and uh, like, like many younger travellers, I felt that lack very keenly, even though we had many of the trappings of, of gypsy life, if you like, the horses and the sort of vivaciousness and the language and, and the singing and stuff. That, that life of the road was, was gone by the time I, I grew up. In my family, not, not for many people, but for us. So part of me simply wanted to go and see these places that I'd heard so much about and that, that had an existence in my imagination, which I, I wanted to see how the real places matched up. And also, as a writer, I simply thought if I don't spend time in them, if I don't sleep and eat and, and dwell in them, I, I'm not going to have the right or the ability to write about them properly. And it was a line by the great Scottish nature writer and mountaineer, Nan Shepherd, uh, that kept playing on my mind. Uh, no one truly understands the mountain who hasn't slept on it, or worse to that effect, I've probably mangled that quotation in my train. But, um, but that's what she thought, and I believed it was true, and that I therefore needed to, to sleep and eat in these places, many of which are deserted, some of which are inaccessible, you know, have supermarkets built on them now, uh, and some of which I was shocked to discover are, are very much as they were in centuries past. So I, um, th there's the bit when you first set off in your van and you try and decide where to spend your first night. Um, and um, you, you're quite open about how you felt completely spooked by certain places. Um, uh, and that, that, that struck me as qu quite interesting because I suppose for me that reflected that idea that you know, you're, a, you're a modern um, British man um, and you, um, you're sort of disconnected from the, 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 the traveling heritage um, and that that sort of being afraid um, is something that, I mean, I would be afraid <laughs> to do that, but, but of course for your forebears, that was their lifestyle. Yeah, and it, it, it was as odd for me as it probably would be for anyone else to, to think, well, I'm, I'm going to go and sleep in the back of a of a transit van because it, it near as close as I can get to where my great grandmother was born because there used to be uh, a vivacious 
gypsy culture here, which isn't there anymore. And in fact, all that was there was a load of brambles and a single Highland cow roaming around um, on, 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 uh, so I could see all this life of the past, but, but it wasn't there anymore. And, you know, I had an offer from a filmmaker to sort of follow me around and, and film this experience, but I instinctively knew that it would look like what it was really, which was a quite a weird attempt to connect with the past and, and a sort of slightly ludicrous quest of a guy living in a van for a year. I, I don't think that translates to film, but but on paper I could render what I could see uh, and what, what used to be there, um, this kind of ghost geography, really, of people whose whose culture and ancestors didn't take place in stately homes or in castles or even in indoors at all, but, but was was there briefly. And also, as part of your book, you, you go into the history of the Romani people. Um, and for our listeners, could you give a very brief um, snapshot of what, what, that, what that is? Yeah, so I suppose, I think the book is, is really preoccupied with Britain and its gypsy history. But I had to address the wider history of, of the Roma, of the global gypsy community, uh, in order to situate that within it. So... You know, very briefly, uh, what you have with the Romani Gypsy community in in Britain, say now, is uh, a confluence, I think, of, of two cultures. And this isn't how everybody sees it, but it's how I see it. You have indigenous nomadic peoples of the, I'm not a massive fan of the word indigenous, to be honest, but I think it does a job uh, in this context. Indigenous nomadic peoples who've been living and, and traveling around uh Britain and Ireland for for many centuries. And then a small group of people arrives who have roots in the Indian subcontinent, in, specifically in, in what is now northwestern India, Pakistan, and parts of Afghanistan, um, and who've picked up aspects of other cultures, Persia, Byzantine, Greece, um, and the Central and Eastern Europe and, and, and Western Europe, perhaps Scandinavia, on the way to to, to uh, Britain, where they arrived probably at the end of the 15th century and oddly were received by the Scottish Royal Court and managed to borrow money off of the kings of Scotland. That relationship didn't last very long, but initially it was seemingly happy and productive. But then within a few decades, these people, these Romani people with their strange language and outlandish clothes and darker skin quickly fell into disfavour and, and were expelled by royal decree of Henry VIII from England on pain of death not, not long afterwards. So, and they, But over the centuries, uh, these people mixed with, with nomadic people who were already here, and that picture is incredibly complicated and has to be pieced together largely from censuses. And, uh, historians like David Cressy have done a fantastic job of that because the establishment, for the most part, wasn't really interested in these people other than in terms of managing them as a sort of problem. Uh, and actually, I think that's largely the case today. So um, there's a lot there. I'm just going to pick up the strand around the connection with with Northwest India. Um, so gypsies are originally Indian. That's a way of putting it, which 
really gypsy activists have struggled to get acknowledged for a long time. But the problem with that way of putting it is that it makes it sound like Romani people or, or gypsies are are just Indian, if you like. And I think that's a not just wrong, but actually a ludicrous idea. Uh, what you have is people who have a certain amount of Indian heritage, which is very evident in in things like the Romani language and certain customs around food and marriage and death. And but but it's there's heritage from many other places um, and and prominently from the countries in which Romani people live and, and in which their ancestors have lived for for a very long time. So yes. Indian heritage is a very important aspect of Romani culture, but to say that the gypsies are Indian, I think, is, is some, a statement I can't stand by, really, is it? As, as I think it's much too reductionist, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, it, it, realistically, if, if we look back um, um, at, at the way uh, that historical travel, um, these people would have left Northwest India, what would you say, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago? It's only about a thousand years ago, actually. Okay. It's, it's, it's com- relatively recently. So that's in terms interesting of, because you know, uh, <laughs> compared to say Jewish, it's the Jewish diaspora. It's quite recent. Yeah. So, so as the first women in China were binding their feet, the nomadic tribes were setting off on their feet um, and with their horses and caravans heading westwards. Um, and um, it's slow travel, bit by bit. Presumably, they would settle in different places, and as you say, you know, pass through. Um, the um, uh, Middle East and, uh, and, and Europe um, across the landmass. Um, and that's a thousand years, 40 generations. Uh, and of course, um, that uh, original Indian heritage is going to be um, mixed up with all the different people and places that they, these people and their um, children and their children's children and, and so on and so forth down to where we, where we are now. I'm glad you say mixed up because ac- academic specialists in gypsy history, and in fact, many gypsies themselves tend to speak about dilution instead of mingling and mixing and all those things which are inevitable in human existence. Um, and, and, you know, in Victorian times, they would get very exercised uh, specialists in gypsy history about things like the the intermingling between for instance, Irish travellers uh, uh, or, or, or Scottish travellers, ethnic groups with their own histories uh, within within Ireland and the British mainland uh, and Romani people, as if it was somehow a tragedy <laughs> that, uh, that, that these people hadn't been anthropologically preserved. And I think there are traces of that sentiment still lurking around today, unfortunately. And, and uh, um, unfortunately, I... I, I personify the very thing that these people are anxious about because I have a, a mixed heritage, although I grew up in quite quite a kind of monocultural Romani environment, um, like most people, you know, I'm a, a mongrel, really. <laughs> and you don't look particularly like the stereotypical um, gypsy that we see in um, comic books and pantomime and all the rest of it. Far from it. Um, yeah, more like a... Swedish supply PE teacher, I'm told. And so language is a key part of uh, Romani identity. Um, can you tell us more, more about that? Yes, so the, the Romani language, 
I suppose I should address the elephant in the room first, which is its similarity, uh, the, the similarity of its name to the, the word Romanian, uh, which is a, an odd etymological confluence, if you like, a, a sort of convergent evolution of two words which have completely separate histories. The word Romani comes from the Indian word Rom, meaning a, a person, or in the Romani language, husband. Um, whereas the, the word Romania comes from the same root as the Roman Empire, Romania being one of the, the provinces of, of the Roman Empire. So it, but it just so happens that one of the largest Romani populations in the world lives in Romania and is very connected to Romania, I think, in the mind of many Europeans, um, to the extent that I think for many people, Romanian and, and Romani are seen as kind of very intermeshed. Mm -hmm. Um, Romani people in Romania were, were, for the most part, the slave caste, if you like. I think that's kind of an accurate use of that word. For, for about 400 years from the 15th to the 19th centuries and right into what in, in England was the Victorian period were sold on open markets alongside livestock, uh, which is a, a little known, but I think important fact if you're going to try and understand uh, gypsy history in Europe. But sorry, the Romani language yeah, is very important to me and I, I do use it in my work. And at one point when I was an angry, sort of ridiculous uh, gypsy nationalist, I wrote poetry only in the Romani language. To be honest, probably inspired by Irish writers who'd taken a very forthright stance with, with the Irish language. And, and that weirdly, although it was a gypsy thing, was inspired by the fact that in my dad's family there were, there were many Anglo-Irish people of Republican uh, sort of start. So you're bilingual. Oh, well, we'll pick up the Irish bit with Janet uh, very shortly. Um, and but it's, so, would you say you're bilingual in in English and and Roman uh, Romani? I I would and, and I am, but I can't use the Romani language in the same way I use English. Um, it's if you I'm able to talk about anything that my family talked about up until the 1950s. Uh, while they were farm workers. You know, I can't translate the instructions to a, a laptop into the Romani language, but if you want me to discuss farm work and living outside and, and the sun and the sea and the stars and the sky and, and you know, the, the wildlife and family and anger and love, and all, I can do that stuff, but I can't do um, sort of bureaucratic and of course, I suppose that's because the language grew up out of the that world, that lifestyle. Um, and I, I, I gather um, from my linguistics uh, studies years ago uh, that, you know, there are loads and loads of words for snow in the Eskimo language um, uh, uh, compared to us here, where um, we've got different kinds of words for different kinds of rain, for example, but not snow. Um, and so the, for, for, for the Romani language, that's, it's all about the, the life that they um, uh, lived or, and are living now. Yes, and there is a, a modern form of the Romani language, a kind of international form that's used by activists and people who, are act who, who communicate with the European Union. And, and uh, you know, you can use a form of Romani to to speak in that way, but I don't, unfortunately, have that. I'm very bad at kind of international Romani. Are you able to uh, um, give us a, a, a brief uh, example of, 
or something in in Romani because it's obviously a very rare language that for for, for many of our listeners I would. Awali astisa mandi tabesha kai to rocker sorke divas crystal Murray Romani chip Mandy's kaka alaj to rocker minoga Romani chip pensa fussia a kushti chip pensa vamandi. But uh, that, that's just, I mean, I don't, <laughs> that's me saying I, I, I could speak all day. But, but to Mandy Akakajin, Yeklava, Samandi Pukert, but you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't understand much of what I said. Brilliant. Thank you. No, we wouldn't. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> uh, so it just makes, sounds lovely. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, I get various re reactions to it. It's, I'm told it sounds like I'm speaking English, but you can't understand a word I'm saying. And, and I think that's what you probably expect, given that the language has existed here for so long. And, and in fact, much of its grammar, not all of it, but much of the grammar is actually English. It's the vocabulary that remains Indian, Persian, Greek. There's some German in there, you know, some Romance, so on. And, and someone um, of, of gypsy heritage um, from, I don't know, Eastern Europe or from Germany or from wherever, uh, Persia, uh, Middle East, um, would be able to understand you? No, they'd have incredible difficulty understanding anything I just said, probably apart from the odd word. Uh, most Romani speakers worldwide speak uh, an inflected form of the Romani language, which means it preserves Indian grammar. And sounds incredibly uh, different. So to give you a quick example, I'm sorry, I, I appear to have gone off on one, but um, uh, the words of the Romani national anthem are Gelem Gelem Lungonet Romensa Maladilem Bachtale Romensa Ai Romale Katar Tumenaven Itsarensa Bocale Chavensa. So you can tell how different that sounds from from what I just said. Um, and in fact, my language isn't, isn't classed as, as if you like, full, fully fledged Romani by academics. They call it para-Romani or a creolized form because it's mixed with English. That's uh, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel like a completely hopeless Chinese person because I speak English, um, but I don't speak any kind of formal Chinese. I have a, a, a sort of equivalent, I suppose, pidgin Chinese, if you like, um, that I grew up speaking at home uh, because I learned it orally from my family around me. Um, and I have a bit of Malay because I'm from Malaysia and the official language of Malaysia is Malay. So I learned a little bit of that, but I don't use it here in England. Um, and with Chinese, I very rarely get a chance to use it. So I will walk into a Chinese restaurant um, and they'll talk at me in, in either Cantonese or Mandarin and I'll go, mm, and they'll hand me the um, special menu for Chinese people. Um, and I'll look at it and I can't read the language. So I have to go, mm, sorry, English tourist menu, please. So I never get to eat the, the tasty special Chinese um, food. I have to eat the tourist menu. Um, but in a way, I suppose it's to do with um, I'm here um, and um, my the useful language for me is is English. Um, I speak uh, some French, a um, bit of German, a bit of Italian because I travel in, in Europe. Um, and for a while, I kind of lost touch with my Chinese and my Malaysian heritage uh, in a way in order to fit in. Um, but uh, Later on uh, in my 20s and 30s, when I started to write and leading up to Banffy Blues, I began to be interested in Chinese culture um, again and and um, 
and and Malaysian stories and and the stories of of my ancestors and and the past and and I, I hope that despite not having um, the the language that I have in a way balanced out that that sort of um, side of me that I I didn't want to look at but now I'm more much more of a, a holistic person. Um, so turning to you, Janet, uh, and and the Irish language and and what. Um, uh, what Damien touched on just now. Uh, what's um, you know? What is your relationship with the Irish language? Oh well, um, I, I'm trying to learn it, but it's ever so hard. And I think maybe I've left it too late. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm now I'm doing beginners level three with the city lit, which is a bit lo lovely that you know there was a lockdown in that way because it's on Zoom instead of having to go to London. And, um, and I can even do it. I'm in Gozo at the moment. I can even do it here. Uh, but I'm just, I've, every week I just feel further behind. I have odd words like Tishmahor means parents. Isn't that lovely? Tishmahor. But, uh, and Trafur means either brother or sister. I can't remember. But actually I find it kind of intimidating. I find it a little bit terrifying. It is, I mean, I know English is complicated, but it's not complicated for me, is it? Um, it it's, there seems to be a massive amount of grammar goes along with the Irish. An awful lot of letters that you don't pronounce that are just sitting there waiting to catch you out. And um, Brendan, uh, the, the playwright uncle, learnt, because uh, obviously Irish was a suppressed language by the, by the British. It was, it was um, illegal for the Irish to speak their own language. And then there was a big Gaelic revival around the time of the Easter Rising and everything, with Yeats and, and the like. And um, but I don't working class Dublin people didn't didn't learn it. And uh, my uncle Brendan, he, he was a Republican, and he was in the IRA, and he was imprisoned for IRA activities, and he went to a, a prison camp called. Arbor Hill, and there was a man imprisoned with him who was a, a Gael tact person, uh, the, the, the Gaelic speaking region of Ireland, and he taught him Irish. And, and uh, in fact, Brendan wrote his first play in Irish and uh, spoke very good Irish, but he had a lot, a lot of leisure to learn it. <laughs> he, had, he was in there for, well, he was sentenced to 14 years. He was let out on the amnesty, but um, he was in there a good while. So. What was the life? For, what were the plays like that were in in the Gaelic language and and the English version? Were were they different or just a direct translation? They were different. The the the, the hostage, which I suppose is his most famous, that was uh, produced by Joan Littlewood, directed by Joan Littlewood at the Theatre Royal Stratford East, um, was originally um, done in Gaelic. I'm trying to remember the name, but I can't. And people who saw it always said it was far superior. I don't think it had as many laughs in it. But <laughs> and I think that might be a kind of a slightly anti-English sentiment there, but it was far superior. Um, yeah, that, that was quite different, quite different, yeah. And for, for yourself, um, what, what, you know, why do you feel you want to, uh, to learn the language? Part of it is just this eternal feeling, as I have an English mother, of not being Irish enough. I'm, I'm sure that's it. And partly is because it is just so beautiful. 
I mean, it just sounds so wonderful and it would be lovely to be able to I, I, I was very lucky to take part in a conference that the Brendan Behan conference in 2014 that was held in Rome and there were at least three people there uh, and professors and um, members of the clergy and that who were going to give talks and they could talk to each other in Irish and I just thought oh that must be lovely but um, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to do that but I, I just to explore it a little bit. That's all I can hope for. Brilliant. Um, now, all three of us are to some extent outsiders in England, um, Irish, Gypsy, Chinese. Um, how do you think that impacts on you and your creative work, um, Janet Bean? Um, yes, I think it does impact. When I, when I, I'm an actress by training, and when I um, left drama school, I was getting an awful lot of auditions for Irish parts because of my name and then I'd turn up and I wouldn't be Irish enough and then there were other parts for which they'd say well she's she's just Irish she can't have this part because I mean things thank god are changing a little bit um, and then when I was in my late 20s I think I was working in Belfast and I went down to Dublin to audition at the Abbey and the then director of the Abbey Thomas McConnor I did my little speech Teresa's speech from the hostage in a perfect Irish accent. And he said, uh, what part of Ireland are you from? And I said, I'm not from Ireland, I'm from London. And he said, oh no, we could never employ you before one of our own people. And I just slunk away with my tail between my legs. So yes, I, 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 I never think about it, but I think a lot of my life is concerned with trying to be Irish. <laughs> But you're sort of caught between two worlds, aren't you? Sort of not Irish enough and what too. What can Irish. I do? What can I do? But you know, as as, as Damien said, we're, we're we're all mongrels. What I mean, I don't know why I feel this way. Um, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a neurosis. But then, as Brendan says, my neurosis are my pots and pans, my nails and saucepans. Um, and so, Damien Labar, how has being an outsider uh, impacted you in your work? I mean, I, I really feel very similarly to, to Janet about so much of this, I think. I mean, the, the, the Romani language for me has always been incredibly important. I think definitely partly because I don't look like a stereotypical gypsy. It was something that I could do that was a, a physical thing that showed that I, I really was who I was because the, the response often if I tell people, you, you know, I'm, I'm a, my mum's a Romani or I'm a, I'm a gypsy or whatever is, is often disbelief or, or sort of questioning, a weird kind of questioning uh, as, it, as if I don't know who I am, who my family are. Um, it, so, uh, I mean, sometimes I will facetiously respond in the Romani language, I, I met someone at a house party in London once who said, oh, someone said you're, you're gypsy, which immediately is, is quite odd because travellers don't tend to say I'm gypsy, it's I'm, I'm a traveller. Um, but I gave them the benefit of the doubt. And they said, oh, I'm gypsy. And so I, I started to speak to them in the, in the Romani language, which I thought was fair enough because if, if I told someone I was Italian, I wouldn't be shocked if they responded to me in Italian. Um, but this person was sort of terrified and just walked away without <laughs> even speaking. So, um, I mean, I don't know. It's 
yeah, it's a it's a real culture in all its banality and at times its interest, but I think it's seen as something else and, and partly, you know, popular culture is to blame that, that there's that rock and roll use of the word gypsy, the sort of Fleetwood Mac or, or Bob Dylan use of it to mean uh, someone that artists empathise with or aspire to be, you know, bohemian of the road, really. And there is that aspect of, of gypsy history, but also, you know, it, like the Romani language is just another language on one level. And I, I just was particularly fascinated to speak it as well as possible uh, not that I'm a, a, a great speaker, to be honest, or writer in it, but um, because people so often disbelieved me when I told them about my heritage. Yeah, I'd like to touch on on stereotypes because that's part of being the outsider. Um, I think for, for me, um, uh, living over here, um, I came over to school and stayed on, um, you know, when I was twelve, um, and wanting to be a writer, and I studied, uh, I, I read English uh, at, at Oxford, and all the great, uh, you know, English writers, Dickens and Hardy, and I, I love the, the Victorians. Um, and uh, what you see around you is um, is books um, are, are books. Uh, and great literature in, in English by English people for English people um, and by which I mean um, you know white p- uh, people um, and it's of course more recently there's much more diversity um, but when I was, wrote my two novels The Flame Tree and Mind Game in around um, the uh, late 1990s um, Amy Tan was, 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 was big um, and uh, I didn't want to write about um, you know, family domestic dramas in a Chinese family. I wanted, I, I loved John Grisham. I loved all the Tom Cruise movies, you know, all the um, Jason Bournes, all the thrillers. Um, and I wanted to put in, in the center of that mix, uh, a Chinese heroine. So my two heroines of those thrillers are Chinese women, lawyers, um, and they get to do the whiz bang uh, and they're running around and being chased and, and doing clever things with gadgets and, and, and stuff. Um, and I was um, uh, very pleased that Hodder and Stoughton um, picked them up. Um, but there was then difficulty in trying to place them because they were neither Amy Tan nor John Grisham. And there was an expectation that if it's a book about a Chinese woman by a Chinese woman it it should either she should be some sort of you know tortured mother um, have a terrible life have bad feet and ultimately I did kind of go there later on in my creative work um, and or she would be some sort of sing-song girl um, you know beautiful prostitute type um, you know rescued by a white man and I in those works I kind of subverted that genre um, and and you know she was the strong powerful one um, and uh, that is something that I, as when I was younger in particular, I had to deal with in my 20s. Um, my, uh, that people saw me and kind of expected me to not speak English and be very cute and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, the, a, a, a woman met my mother on, on the plane and she was a, very, a, white, a white English woman. I was terribly excited to hear that my mother had this 20-year-old daughter because um, her, her son, who was in his 20s, was having difficulty you know, meeting a nice English girl. But she thought that if he met uh, a, a demure, submissive um, Chinese girl, that she would make 
that I would make a perfect wife. Um, my, my mother just pretty much laughed in her face because she knew what a bullshit old so-and-so that uh, I, I, I was, and I still am. <laughs> um, well, at least you got the warning anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I yes, guess yeah, I, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts, um, Damien Labar first, and then I'll go on to Janet, about you know the stereotype um, of, of, of a gypsy. You did touch on it a little. But if you could expand on, on your thoughts on that. Yes, I mean, I think that there have been many gypsy stereotypes and they've sort of morphed and, and shifted over time, but I think they're often rooted in in Romany cultural realities. So this, the stereotype of, of the dark-skinned gypsy is because most Romany people worldwide have dark skin. And as a result of that, uh, in you know, have, have been enduring really apartheid-like conditions in, in many countries for centuries. Um, so, and their name for themselves in the Romani language often is, is Kale, Blacks, you know, it's, and, and we live in a village for the Blacks, literally, and, and then there's a stream or something, and then there's a, a more affluent village for white Europeans on the hill kind of thing. That's what it's like in in many parts of, of Central and Eastern Europe to this day. Uh, and it's kind of echoed to an extent, although differently in the in the, the confinement of many gypsy communities to gypsy sites uh, in Britain and Ireland, uh, you know, which, which have barbed wire around them often. And it's not entirely pleasant, even though people are often grateful to have a place to put their trailer at all. Um, so, so there's that. I'm sorry, I seem to have forgotten what the question is in, in attempting to paint that. Um, that but your, your relationship to the stereotype. Um, and, to and the I stereotype. Whether in writing the book, you're perpetuating the stereotype of the gypsy by writing about it. Well, I, I, I don't think I'm perpetuating the stereotype of a gypsy by writing about Romani culture, have, have I sort of taken advantage of the stereotype in order to, to sell my book? Probably. I mean, it has a horseshoe on the cover uh, and a water wagtail and a, and a black wrought iron pot, which is a traditional cooking implement of Romani people. You know, there's gold on it. Um, there's this kind of, uh, um, this, this pattern on the spine, which you'd see engraved on, on the sides of Romani wagons and stuff. But, you can call those things stereotypical or you can call them important, treasured cultural motifs. It's a tricky one, this, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, that's what I was saying about the, root, the the fact that stereotypes are often rooted in, in the culture. I mean, the, the gypsy musician is another one. Um, the flamenco dancer is, a, is another one. Um, the gypsy criminal is, is a very powerful one. Gypsy people, particularly men, are overrepresented statistically in the prison system. So it's not that there's not any truth at all in that, but it, once we start to interrogate what it means, it all, it all becomes a lot less simple than we thought it was. I mean, my personal view of it is that the things that lead people to prison, exclusion from education, poverty, um, social exclusion, are massively present in, in the Gypsy and, and in Ireland, in the Irish traveler community in the Irish traveller community in England, um, it, certainly in, in the Romani community. Uh, they're the same phenomena that, that 
mean anyone ends up in prison. So the idea that it's, it's gypsiness or travelerness that I mean, there in some families there is a flippant attitude to crime uh, in some traveller families. That's not specific to travellers. Um, so, uh, yeah, and travellers are... Sorry, sorry Jan Janet. Sorry, you need a few more gypsy magistrates, I think. A few more gypsy magistrates. I mean, yeah. I don't know about magistrates, but lawyers do exist, and barristers and civil servants even, some of whom are open about their ethnicity, some of them aren't. You know, they fear for the impact it will have on their career, I suppose. But... Uh, yeah. And I, I think I, a lot. I think a lot of people. A lot of people end up in prison who shouldn't be there, don't they? So, and, and a lot of it is just. It's just the the judicial system. Um, constantly ending up being, uh, you know, populated by people who don't really know anything about people. <laughs> they only know about their own kind of people. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. But I find just as a final word. Um, I find it unhelpful to dwell on the idea of stereotypes, I think, when I'm writing, because I'm just trying to perceive what's in front of me and describe it as accurately as possible. And that may be the, the antithesis of a stereotype. It may be something that conforms very closely to a stereotype. But if I'm obsessed with the idea of stereotypes, I think I'm unlikely to do my job as a writer properly, I think. Yes, that's probably true. Um, so Jan Janet Bean, on, on in, in your context um, and the Irish uh, stereotype, uh, uh, and perhaps also the stereotype of the Irish matriarch, um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I just wanted to say, first of all, that actually I, I have gypsy blood uh, and my mother looked absolutely stereotypical gypsy. Cheekbones you could cut yourself on and raven black hair and uh, and of course in that context that stereotype was you know marvelous because you look at this you, oh, you look just like a gypsy um and people found that to be lovely um the irish well very difficult in ireland to to be a woman N not so difficult now but traditionally you know the position of women was pretty dreadful so um i think that <laughs> You know, the, 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 the Irish matriarch comes about because she's somebody who's just constantly struggling to, you know, hold everything together. And um, I mean, there are so many Irish stereotypes, aren't there? There's the charming, the, you know, the, oh, you lovely Colleen kind of thing. And then there's you, you drunken bum. And um, uh, it's some... Um, it is unhelpful. I mean, I think there's, there's archetypes, aren't there? And, and I like to think of Ireland as being populated. When I go to Ireland and I hear people talking in the pub, I don't think there's just some ordinary people talking in the pub. I just think, oh, this is fantastic. I mean, a couple of pints of Guinness doesn't harm either, but you know what I mean? To me, they, are, they have a kind of a magic, which probably they don't have to each other, do they? Um, but I, th I think one of the... the, the stereotypes, stereotypical ways of looking at the Irish, which is true or was true anyway, is that they were great singers and musicians. And But that is to do with the culture, where if you live in a culture, a bit like the Welsh, and probably like gypsies too, if you live in a culture where there is automatically music and there is automatically singing, you will automatically be able to play and, and sing, you know. And, uh, and so I think that's kind of fair enough, really. And they have the best pubs.
<laughs> and so music was a very much a strong part of your your grandmother's life and so that's why you felt it was important to incorporate it into the stage play yeah I mean they used to have I remember this from when I was a teenager they'd have these fantastic parties just about every single person in the room from a three-year-old to you know the oldest granny in the room would have something to sing or something to recite you know not necessarily play an instrument though you know there, there was there was lots of music in the family my uncle Dominic was very famous as a um, songwriter and uh, um, but yeah my, uh, my mother <clears throat> who's not Irish was a fantastic singer and always sang around the house and my father sang and so you just grew up I mean, I must say, when I was a teenager, it used to drive me insane. I used to think, why, why, why are you treating me to an aria from Carmen at eight o'clock in the morning? But, um, but I see now it was an excellent thing. Yeah. And so um, I want to look at um, our, our different processes in uh, uh, researching our respective family stories. Um, I think I'll, I'll, st I'll stick with, with, with Janet Bean for now. Um, it, it, you, you had the, the book, um, your father's book, Mother of All the Beans. You had the, uh, the album um, and, uh, and, and your own personal uh, recollections of, of, of your grandmother. Um, but you had quite an interesting process of bringing together all this information into a statement play in that you didn't do it yourself could you tell us about that no I didn't um uh might just have been laziness on my part or <laughs> but it, it, I think it turned out very well because I know all this stuff inside out um uh, my director our director Jess uh did the abridging of the book and she was, I think she saw, and I kept thinking, oh, you've left out that funny story. And oh, you've left out that funny story. But actually what she was doing was she, what I was saying earlier, she was bringing out the woman, the woman herself. and being quite sort of pure about that. And um, I think that it was very helpful to have somebody who didn't have firsthand um, knowledge of this woman to be able to do that. And so she drew out the, the, the themes and the stories uh, that she felt was Im important in telling the story of Kathleen. Yeah. Um, and did you, but did you have sort of tussles with her where you were saying, oi, you know, this is my grandma's story. I want to put this bit in. Um, and in terms of the sort of creative choices and artistic, um, uh, you know, you're creating a, a work of art rather than just, oh, you know, my stories about grandma. Um, how did you negotiate all, all that? Um, I don't think I negotiated it. I think I just, I, I think at times I felt as though Jess and my grandmother were ganging up against me and I just, I just let them do it. Um, uh, because the thing is, in, in, in that kind of creative process, as you'll know, and as Damien will know, you don't know, at diddly squat, when you're doing it, you don't know what the end result is going to be. And that really was that the point of the process was to find out what people thought and whether it hung together and whether it was entertaining, whether it was funny. And um, yeah, people seem to think that it was, which is lovely. And I, I want to pick up on, on that before we go over to, to, to Damien, because uh, from my experience of telling my family stories um, and Bamfeet Blues has the great grandmother whom I never knew and the Bamfoot woman, as I said, uh, whom I didn't know. But it incorporates um, uh, I, I personify my, my mother, personify, I embody my mother. Um, and I and these are stories um, that, that fill the, the, the play and the book uh, that were passed down through the generations of women. 
um, told orally. And ever since I was a child, I wanted to tell the stories of my um, ancestors because I would sit with grandma or grandpa and, and even my mom, you know, they would repeat stories passed down um, and I would write them all down. And at one point I interviewed my grandfather um, using an old cassette recorder to get his stories. Um, and it was always just so fascinating. Um, and but of course, as in age 13, I couldn't I didn't have the skill uh, or experience to write uh, a, a big book about it. Um, and then in my 20s and 30s, I would write, but it just wasn't coming together as a book. And it was only when I discovered live storytelling um, and, and, you know, this these um, sort of storytelling nights that happened upstairs in, in pubs. And, and I started telling some of these stories and I realized that I could tell them using my voice because actually they were oral stories. And I've got this English voice, but um, Malaysian, uh, the Malaysian voice is a bit more like this, a bit sing-song, it's a bit sort of pidgin because you take language from Chinese language from Malay, you put all together and then you got this mix la. Um, and la is quite a, a very uh, uh, peculiar and unique kind of um, uh, sound uh, that uh, Malaysians use. Um, so I was able to embody in the stage play um, uh, and, and articulate the story using my English voice and my Malaysian voice and the story just came to life um, as I performed it and then from that point writing the book became a lot a lot easier um, and so for me the research was really around um, um, remembering the stories that were told to me um, looking up on my old notes um, and, and putting it all, all together in in these two different forms um, so um, turning to you now um, Damien Labar what was your process in researching your family stories some interesting uh overlaps between our experience and practice there I think again I mean I'm hearing them all over the place in this conversation which is interesting initially I was forced to try and remember everything that people said the tales that people told at funerals at weddings and and just sitting at home in the evening of the old days because to, to get out a notebook and start taking notes is it's very much not it's not de rigueur in the in the gypsy community to do that, and it, it, in fact, it would probably be associated with, you know, the police or the council or pe people who have notebooks and and start writing things down. So, um, but in, in later years, I did start to to interview people on tape with various consequences. I mean, one happy consequence is I've got taped interviews of people who are no longer alive. Uh, but it, it, it caused a lot of arguments in my family. Some some relationships have never recovered. You know, it's, writing is a is not a normal occupation for a traveller, and not everybody is a fan of people writing about the culture, about them. Um, doesn't really matter what you write, to be honest. You can write a, a very troubling um, tale of of sort of harrowing abuse, like Gypsy Boy by Mikey Walsh, or you can write something very different. You know, an elegiac attempt at a, an historical travelogue which is what i was trying to write the response is the same really is you know from from family members i think that's it's it's probably connected to memoir in general isn't it and people's discomfort over you referring to them you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't if you don't name people they can feel like you're trying to that you're excluding them from credit uh, but if you do name them it's sort of how dare you name me and, and sort of steal my authorship over my own life kind of thing i think though anyone who writes 
in these genres is going to be faced with those 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 hurdles, those challenges, really. But uh, I was very interested by the idea that you you made use of a different voice, which is still your voice, but not your voice in the everyday. Because um, I've done this at times, I've done a bit of acting, and then I, I'm sort of free to play, I suppose, a more stereotypical traveller and to tell stories in a more a more typical traveller voice, which feels weird to me in one way. It's almost like doing an impersonation of your own culture. Um, but at the same time, I, I feel, as I'm sure many people do, particularly if you sort of had an education or do a job that's not typical in your culture, there's a sort of shadow self of how you might present if you hadn't left, if you know what I mean. And I often think about the accent and the mannerisms that were hammered out of me really at boarding school and, and Oxford and in, in the workplace. Um, you know, I was mocked as people are who have a, a weird accent when I turned up to school and went, how are you doing? You know, nice to meet you. My name's Damien and I'm from... People were just astonished at how stupid I sounded. And, and, that, <laughs> and that's the speaking English. That's not. I didn't turn up speaking the Romany language. I just had a sort of yokelish traveller accent. So um, it's interesting how, how we manage that later on. Yes, it's, you, it's like we're all just sort of being funneled into the sort of person who will pass for you know, uh, entitled to this, entitled to that, entitled to something else. And, you know, because it's not really just, it, an awful lot of this is about class, isn't it? Not, yeah, not really I mean, that, that's, some, yeah. we haven't used that word yet, have we, I don't think, but it's, it's massively present under the surface in this discussion, really. When I was at Central School, when I first went, I had, uh, I, I was I'd sort of talked like that, I suppose, a little bit. My mother hated it because she's from Yorkshire, but I used to talk like that. And I spent three years with a, a bone prop, if you know what that is. It's got a little slot and it, uh, it trains your mouth to make lovely vowel sounds. So, and then as soon as I left, EastEnders started and <laughs> I could have had a very fine career if they hadn't propped it out of me. Never mind. Yes, I mean, class, that's a big one. Um, mm. And uh, but I think it's more than obviously just just voice and, and accents. But um, I acquired, uh, fortunately, I have, have quite a good ear. So I acquired this voice um, fairly early on um, when in my second first or second term at boarding school. Um, and it is very useful because um, I my main career was as, as a lawyer um, and I'll walk into a room you see a little Chinese girl as I then was um, now a little Chinese woman um, and um, people may start to be condescending um, and um, once I open my mouth and I can I can up it a notch or I can flatten it although <laughs> when I think I flattened it to London I actually still sound ridiculously posh um uh but it's you use what you can to get by don't you um yeah. to to pass as it were um but i think at the that will risk us going off into another hour of fascinating discussion <laughs> so i'm going to try and wrap it up here um so for our listeners who may be inspired to look into their own family histories what would your advice um be to them um janet bm um just Go for it. I mean, um, be um, be prepared for anything, but but yeah, I think I think it's a it's it's a great thing to sort of know 
where you came from. You so regret, you know, my grandmother never sat her down and said, what was it like? You know? So yeah. I think that's that's right for me. I think sometimes you might you might open some things um, from people's memories that might be upsetting for them and for you, um, but it actually for me um, gathering together my family stories has empowered me, um, and it ties in with being an outsider in this country. It ties in with you know um, this this voice that is partly me, but not also me. But it's a, a way of passing, and and um, um, that sense that no matter what people throw at me, I know where I'm from. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm part of something bigger than yeah. just little old me, mm -hmm. um, of this Chinese heritage um, and of generations of powerful or empowered uh, women, strong women. Um, and what about you, Damien Labar? Any, any um, advice for our listeners? I'm tempted to say, revel in your naivety because I sometimes think if I'd known what the result of writing my book would have been, I might not have done it. And, and that would have been sad for me, really, because it's opened up a whole new world of life as a writer. Uh, and I'm now writing a book which is about something which, I mean, that, that Gypsies to Atlantis is, there are connections, but it's quite a weird leap that, but I've only been able to make that, that leap into other territories because I took this leap to writing about my family Howbeit, it was slightly dangerous uh, in some ways. So if, if you feel that you have a story that must be told, then you better tell it because otherwise you'll, you'll be haunted, I think. And for me, the only criterion that, that I tried to keep in mind was I, I didn't want to be someone who was just going on about themselves and their family. You know, in every sentence, every paragraph, I was thinking, is there something in this that's of interest to any reader, regardless of their background? And, and if there is, if there's a some kind of a touchstone, a connecting point, then I think you can write about any heritage, you know, that's going to shine through and, and probably will, will do something for some people. And I've had some very beautiful letters from people who felt that I'd managed to crystallise something, particularly people from mixed backgrounds actually that they hadn't seen in, in writing some wonderful advice from my two guests janet bean and damien labar um, and before we sign off um where can people go if they would like to find out more about you and your work um damien labar alas I, I i don't have a website i'm on instagram at damien labar D-A-M-I-A-N-L-E-B-A-S. Uh, but I'd probably recommend picking up a copy of The Stopping Places, A Journey Through Gypsy Britain. Or if you're someone who likes audiobooks, there's an audiobook version on Audible. Which I'm, that, that's the one I'm listening to. And it's, um, it's, it's great to have Damien in your ears telling his story. Um, uh, what about you, Janet Bean? Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Yes, I'd just like to second that. Damien's book was great. Loved it. Um, well, if they want to see the film, it's part of Brighton Fringe, which uh, the dates for that are the 28th of May to 27th of June. It's available if you go to um, thelivingrecord.com events, Kathleen and me. Um, and or, or you can just go to the Brighton Fringe website and, and it says what sort of thing do you want to watch and put in events and films and it'll come up. And 
tickets cost nine pounds and if you buy your ticket then you can offer five more to friends and family for six pounds 75 each and um i I, I don't know if people are interested, but I had a little feature in the Irish Times this week. So if you go to irishtimes.com slash culture slash film, that's there with the, with the um, wonderful, wonderful headline, Janet, now old enough to play her grandmother. <laughs> Brilliant. Take that Janet, out you want. <laughs> Janet Bean and Damien Labar, thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you both. My creative conversation today was with Damien Labar and Janet Bean. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. Or you can go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to creative conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast, please share it with your friends wherever you share stuff. Or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify. You can find it by searching for Creative Conversations and my surname, Ui, O-O-I. All this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link again is bit.ly forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at tigerspirituk. Thanks for listening and see you next time.